Hi, I'm Nora, and I'm at church. In a lot of our churches, this is a struggle to stand uh, with um, black people who are going through systemic oppression. Like, what does it look like for us to take that stand? What does it look like for us to to make a statement um, or even just to begin the education process of of understanding the realities of black America as opposed to likely our particular experience in America. And so uh, I think the church um, has an obligation to take a stand in the way that Jesus took a stand. Yeah, defund the church, rebuild the kingdom, ain't no doubt. Time to wake up because the church walls shouldn't be there to keep people out. Yeah, let's come together, ready for change. Now is the time. We are one unit that is under God. Let's put an end to the racial divide. Uh, I gotta scream it out louder. Let's rebuild the kingdom from the ground up. Bringing unity in the community and keep the Holy Spirit all around us. Yeah, yeah, defund the church. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Defund the Church. I'm Frank Turner here with Pastor Justin Dunks of the Belong Collective. I want to thank you for listening and tuning in to this podcast. Uh, we're very excited that you're listening. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, all other major podcast platforms. Obviously, if this is your first time listening, we thank you. Welcome to the show. If, this, if you're a repeat listener, thank you for coming back and listening to Defund the Church. Uh, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about in this episode, the pastor is really going to break down is we on an earlier episode, we talked about defunding the church and, and what it meant from a theological perspective. But now we're going to look at what it looks like actually implemented um, in the hands of, of, of us as believers. So pastor, just go ahead and jump in and let the listeners know what it looks like in action, defund the church. Yeah. So um, thank you, Frank. Uh, so for what we're trying to do here, if you go to defundthechurch.com, you can see all the resources that are there. And I'll begin with uh, our core value. So this is the core value that explains, um, I guess, in a lot of ways, our connection to Jesus, yes, but actually how we're going to model this and live this out, because I think that's really important. Before we get into the tactics, let's talk about the posture. And the posture is that we call them in before you call them out call them in before you call them out. And, and, and the, the point here is, is that we live in a call out culture. The moment someone does something scandalous or bordering on scandalous, or even maybe not that scandalous, but just something they did, uh, Twitter will go crazy really fast. And we immediately call them out. And for, for many, this is cancel culture. You might know it as that. Um, and, and there's a whole conversation to have about cancel culture. But what's interesting to me is that instead of calling Zacchaeus out, Jesus calls Zacchaeus in. And so for us, uh, and, and by the way, Zacchaeus was part of a culture of tax collecting that was incredibly brutal, um, that uh, was incredibly oppressive. Uh, so even if you think the church has been brutal and oppressive and that your leaders are absolutely corrupt because Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which meant he had tax collectors under him doing his bidding as well. Like this, this dude's pretty corrupt. So even if you think that about the church, um, we should still model Jesus and call them in before we call them out and allow the spirit to work in them ultimately uh, to hopefully uh, bring them to a place of understanding and knowledge uh, in this. And so, so we call them in before we call them out. That is our core value, our guiding principle. 
Wow. Yeah. Call them in before you call them out. That's really good. And, and I, I like that you mentioned Twitter and cancel culture because that's the all the rage is, oh, somebody said something. Let's get rid of them. Let's erase them. And, and I think that's it's so important to, to, that, that you use that scriptural um, reference from Zacchaeus. Um, very, very important. So obviously we're calling them in before we're calling them out. What else, uh, what other tools is Defund the Church providing in order to um, get this mission accomplished? So, yeah, so one of the things we're asking people to do is to download a sample letter that we have and they can fill in their information and they can send it to their church. And, uh, and this sample letter has five questions in it. It's our five kind of main questions that we're saying, if the church really honestly took an approach to answering these questions, saw validity within each of these questions and, and a need to answer them, uh, it could it could really transform hearts and, and, and minds and then ultimately even church cultures. And so, uh, and, and I want to also be clear, one thing I didn't state in the previous episode is that we, we are predominantly speaking here to, to white evangelical churches. There are certainly white evangelical churches that are doing great work around racism. And there's, um, there, there's, there's all kinds of churches that are doing good work. So I just want to be really clear right off the bat that like, we're not saying that your church isn't doing these things. We're not saying your church is absolutely negligent in this. Uh, but we are saying in America, there are a lot of churches that, that are missing opportunities here and that ultimately have failed to have a prophetic voice. And so we, we think these questions are good for every church. And, and here's what I'll say. As a pastor of a church that, you know, in my opinion, we are having these conversations. There are some of these questions that I look at and I'm like, we can do better. And, and, and so, so I just want to begin with owning that, like, I'm going to read these questions to you, but, uh, but these questions are things that I feel like uh, every church, even churches that are, you know, feeling like they're, they've got a decent grasp on this or are working hard on this, there, there's probably some elements of, of some of these questions that are like, okay, we still got work to do there. Let, 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 let's put our hand to the plow. So, so I just want to begin with saying, um, I think the posture at which your leadership come to these questions, uh, my hope would be that they would be willing to put the work in. We're all starting from different places. For some of us, it's, it's literally the beginning, the first step in this journey. For some, they've been on this journey and, uh, and this is ultimately just gonna spur them on to continue by you sending the letter. It's gonna show that you, you value this and, and in valuing it, it's gonna give your leaders a reason to say, you know what, these are important conversations. Because a lot of your leaders, I'm just going to be honest as a pastor, they want to have these conversations. They want to bring these to the board. But they also recognize that every time they do, there's a price to pay and they feel more lonely as they as they have these conversations. They feel like they're the only ones that maybe um, feel this is necessary. And that can be a hard decision to make. And, and a letter from you with these questions might remind them that like, yes, this does matter. This is important. I need to have this conversation, even if it does cost me as a leader. Um, I need to. I, I need to be prophetic now. That's my the the mantle of leadership that I hold. These are valid questions. So let's go through some of the questions here. Uh, and we do have verses attached to each of the questions. There's three verses attached to all the questions, and so you can explore those verses. And again, this is all available at defundthechurch.com. We also have like them posted on our Instagram and other places, but. Here we go. Question number one, will we commit to examining our hearts and this church, asking God to show us where we have defaulted to our privilege and preferences over what God envisions for the kingdom? 
Yeah, Frank. So that question there, um, I think is really important because when we talk about defund the church, rebuild the kingdom right there off the very bat, the first question is centered on us ensuring that the way in which we're acting is keeping in mind God's vision for the kingdom. Uh, like it, it, it has to. Um, and also the introspection of examining our own hearts. And so, yeah, any, any thoughts on question one before I go on to question two, Frank, just curious. No, I think it's very important. I think that the idea of, I know I like the context you mentioned, and like I said, I'm, I'm black and, and I've got, I know we're on audio podcast and you're white, but I think this is a very important conversation you mentioned about, you know, white uh, evangelical churches. And I think that, you know, as, as a black man, I'm very, um, heart and uh, my spirit is, is warm by understanding that there has been an implicit bias or privilege that has been enjoyed and, and it doesn't make make you evil or anything like that. I think there, there, there needs to be an understanding that when when, when people mention privilege and, and things like that and a white person, they, they people get defensive and say, what have yeah. I done and things like that. And I, and I think it's very important for two, a black and a white person to have a conversation and not be demonizing one or the other or getting defensive about privilege where it's just something that you you exist you existed in right you did not yeah. create the system um and so just understanding that from a standpoint of the kingdom of god is still the kingdom of god and men have corrupted you know the world and so we have to to kind of work through that so i think that it's important to understand the system that we are in and working through the what God's doing to correct it rather than just saying, well, this is as good as it's going to get. We'll just go to heaven and it'll be okay. I think the rebuilding the kingdom part that you just said is, is, is kind of the missing piece sometimes from people taking action because it's like, well, you know, I mean, we all kind of believe at the end of the day, we'll all be in heaven. It's cool. And, and not realizing that that's just a, really to me, the second most part of what Jesus came to do. He came, the most important thing is for God's will to be done, not actually for us to go to heaven. Mm. That's a benefit right but his yeah. will was like needs to be done so i think that where you start with this first question allows people to, to examine themselves and and say am i living in a world where i'm just comfortable and i'm just you know waiting on i can just you know hide in my bed and watch the news channels and hope that jesus is coming and you know the world's getting really bad versus getting out mm. there and realizing that i'm part of the reason why it's so bad is because i'm not involved and i'm not making a difference. Um, mm. So I think that's a great first question. Yeah, no, so good. Yeah. So the next question is, will we take a stand for black lives? Um, and, and then some references there to where Jesus uh, clearly stood and took a stand for Samaritan lives, like we talked about previously on the podcast. Um, so uh, in a lot of our churches, th this is a struggle to stand uh, with um, black people who are going through s systemic oppression. Like, what does it look like for us to take that stand? What does it look like for us to, to make a statement um, or even just to begin the education process of, of understanding the realities of black America as opposed to likely our particular experience in America. And so uh, I think the church... Um, has an obligation to take a stand in the way that Jesus took a stand. Um, yeah, any comments on question two there? 
you know, it's funny because you wrote, you know, Black Lives, and, and I don't want to dive into Black Lives Matter right this moment, but but yeah. Black, just, just saying Black Lives can get people on edge. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting, say, well, right? It's uh, interesting right. saying Black Lives. Can yeah. Get, it, it, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it, which, which, which is a total, it feels like it's, it's wrong that that should even be an issue that people, I, I, th- I think, I think we got to look at is look at the root of, um, of why people would be offended even by saying, well, why black lives? Why not? Oh, why not Asian lives? Why not? You know, be, but, but you have to look at the reality. This is where, you know, his, historically comes in the context where you've got to also, and we're going to talk about this, I guess, later with some resources and things like that. You got to know the history of what black lives have meant in this country. Like, like you mentioned previously, yeah. if you're listening from another country or something, it may not be the same, but, but we, you know, America is, is a melting pot. So it's not a homogenous place. A lot, a lot of places, sometimes don't have the same issues because we have a lot of different cultures and diversities. But the main thing is when it comes to black lives is they have been at, they've, they've been, black lives have been central to America, which is, which is, mm. which is kind of crazy because it feels like sometimes they're like, Oh, we're the complaining afterthought. Like, isn't it good enough? But it's like black people were literally bought here because the Europeans were like, bro, we cannot farm this land. Like it is too hot. And we don't understand, we don't have the skills to farm this land. And what, what's interesting today is, and this is, this is a total non sequitur, but I have a cousin who spent 15 years in prison um, and, and, he, and he was not wrongfully convicted or anything like that. I'm saying that to tell you that he told me a story about how the prison was run. And he told me that the prisoners do everything in the prison. He said they, they, they wash cars, cook food, do everything. And what I say is, the slaves, what people don't understand about slavery is the slaves did everything. They did so much. And, and, and people just looked at that as like, people, people have almost flipped it around to where, well, you know, they, they were taken care of. No, they took care of this, these plantations. They, they, they made everything run. And so from the inside to the outside, right, to the house Negroes, to the field Negroes, let's keep it real. They, they had yeah. the whole thing on lock. And so when people don't, when people talk about black lives and things like that, it's like, Though the uh, much of the wealth and privilege that people have, not, not necessarily you, but a lot of people have, that money was not given back from slavery, right? You had free labor that was given from black, black and white lives, I mean, excuse me, black lives, given to white lives that they were able to build up wealth. And, and not that it's their fault because they may not know where it came from, but that money was not given back. So then you're saying, well, yeah. I've got this money and everything worked out for me. But it's like, there was, there was, there was a time where Black lives weren't, didn't even matter. They weren't able to get any wealth. It has nothing to do with organizations. It has to do with, will you support the fact that this country, which you say is a one nation under God, was built on the backs of other people who were not treated fairly? Will you support that? Mm-hmm. It's a very relevant question. And I think it's yeah. important that you're asking it. And I, and I applaud you for asking it because a lot of people want to brush over it, as you mentioned previously. Yeah, it's so important. I think what you're talking about there is to you, you bring up two really big points of like generational wealth. Like I don't think we recognize how how much generational wealth plays a role in the wealth gap we see today within poverty. Uh, and and when you talk to you know economists to break that down, it's like, wow, you just see over like two generations, just two generations, you can see huge disparities in wealth you know, uh, of, of what, what can happen when you have that generational wealth. Um, but then you also bring up the, the prison 
industrial complex in some ways that we have, which uh, it's even hard to say in some ways, it's pretty clear we do. Um, and, and when we think about the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, it actually did not abolish slavery. It's really important that we reference this. It abolished slavery as we knew it, but it, it allowed for slavery to exist if, and this is important, if you were a criminal, then you could be utilized as slave labor. And so immediately after the 13th Amendment goes into place, we begin to incarcerate people at a level higher. Currently, we incarcerate people at a level, level higher than any other country. So think about that. Like we've just, in a lot of ways, moved um, that to our prison system, which preys on poor people, but also I think uh, incarcerates African-Americans at four times the rate of the white population per capita. So like when you think of that, it's like, wow, um, when we say, will we take a stand for black lives? We're not just talking about police brutality here. We're talking about a whole system and structure that is baked into our history, into our present, into our policies. And certainly, again, that doesn't mean like policing isn't something we should be thinking about, but it is to say, when we talk about taking a stand for black lives, there's a lot of places to do this. I mean, and one question is, when was the last time uh, you had, uh, and, and I'm just going to make this real about church, when's the last time you had a black pastor in the pulpit? I know churches that are 20 years old that have never had a black person in their pulpit that are a, a, a predominantly white church. Why? Well, my answer to that, the answer they would say is, well, we just don't know anyone. Well, that's the problem. You don't know anyone. And I would guess if I walked into your office as a lead pastor, looked at your bookshelf, I would see um, predominantly white male authors on your bookshelf. You're not reading black authors. Like, so like these things to me, when we talk about taking a stand for black lives, it is, it leads right into our next question. Question three of, will we do the anti-racism work, education and training needed for our leaders and parishioners to grow and truly commit to the ministry of reconciliation. Because the truth is, you're not going to take a stand for black lives if you don't know that the problem exists, if you're not educated. Like you said, you, your, your experience of your brother, correct? That was, that was uh, in, in... First cousin. Your first cousin. Sorry, sorry. He is like my brother, but I mean, yeah, my first cousin. Exactly. Your first cousin. Yeah, your, your first cousin that was in in uh in prison that opened your eyes to some things that you had previously not seen and for many of us it might be the book we read the relationship we have the experience that someone either we have or someone else has that ultimately opens us up to say wow i really need to commit to the ministry of reconciliation on this and usually that's because you know we we do some anti-racism work or we read a resource and so um we do have resources on the website uh we have five books that we recommend. And certainly there's tons more books. I know you even referenced a book that we don't have here earlier to me. And, and, and I would encourage people to check that book out. I'll go through these five books and then you can plug your book, Frank. Um, so uh, to begin the new Jim Crow, which uh, is by Michelle Alexander lays out the exact um, thing I was just talking about, about uh, in a lot of ways, the slave system being transferred to prisons, uh, how to be anti-racist by Abram Kendi. Um, this is a, a great book, uh, Trouble I've Seen by Drew Hart. Uh, Drew's a professor at Messiah. I, I've spoke with him. We've met in person because uh, he's right in my neighborhood area, lives right down the road. Drew's a great person. And uh, this book is really important for the church because it really talks about racism within the church context. Um, 
White Fragility uh, by Robin D'Angelo. Uh, this just really talks about how hard it is for white people to have conversations about race. And I think that's really important that we recognize that like, this is a, it, it, it is a reality that we struggle to enter these conversations without getting defensive. We should own that. We should understand that and, and acknowledge that so that we can then hopefully by acknowledging it, enter in more graciously into these conversations. And then finally, and maybe even most importantly, because I read this usually twice a year, um, Letter from a Birmingham Jail by uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I read this book twice a year. And I'll tell you, I don't think there's any more relevant book right now, historically speaking, to our current realities in our world. So much of what he talks about, like the white moderate like these concepts and ideas that Martin Luther King Jr. talks about are very relevant to what we're going through today. Uh, it's almost, <laughs> it's almost like you could just plug out certain names and put other names in there or plug out certain, you know, organizations and put other ones in there. And you would have a very similar, um, you know, uh, it, it, I guess what I would just say is it's interesting to see how little has changed since he wrote that uh, and how much of what he says is relevant. So it's still worth reading today and uh, and that's by Martin Luther King Jr. So yeah, and you you had said you read a book by uh, John Perkins, right? I did, man. There's a there's a great book called One Blood by John Perkins, and John Perkins is 90 years old. He just turned 90, I think, in June. Wow. And I didn't even know I wasn't familiar with him until this year. Um, really, a lot that has happened, you know, in the country. Obviously, you know, for those you know, everybody knows what's happening in racial unrest. And I just started looking for stuff, and I came across his book, and his book One Blood. It's so powerful because he has the experience that would have that when you read it, you, he, he had a brother that was uh, un, unlawfully killed by the police. He was also beaten. His mother died of starvation, um, all wow. because of really race issues. He grew up in Mississippi and I'm from Alabama, which is funny. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, Mississippi is worse. Like we always have a joke like, oh, you're from Alabama, Mississippi is worse. So he grew up in a place that was very hard and the crazy thing about it is he still believes in reconciliation. He still believes it. I mean, at the end of the book, he's, he's basically saying, I may be getting old, I may not see it, but I believe that this is, it's, it's our time for this to happen. So when I read his book, you know, I hadn't ever even like where we are now, I just feel like God has, has moved that. Like when I read the book, it was like, man, I've got to find a way to, to, to amplify to, to what he's saying. Um, it was so powerful because God wants reconciliation. He believes in that. And, and we mm. cannot, he, we cannot just say, um, God is so restorative and so reparative, right? Like, and I don't want to get into this on here, but sometimes people will say, well, you people say, oh, reparations, right? But I joke around and I say, you know, what happened after 400 years of slavery in Egypt? What did God do? He walked them out of Egypt with all of the Egyptians, gold, silver, and the best stuff they had. And then now on top of that, he provided them food, you know, he, he provided a system for them. And what I'm saying is, I'm not asking for reparations. I'm just saying that when you think about the mistreatment of Black people, mm -hmm. we weren't even allowed to just live and find a way. Like, even if, like, Black Wall Street happened without really any 40 acres and a meal that we were promised, but then it was still burned down. So it's like, when people think about, people argue about reparations, you haven't even just left Black people alone to just, you know, do what they need to do. You, you've terrorized them. So I think that that understanding, uh, watching, you know, these resources that you mentioned, um, also another book, another thing I would like to recommend is um, Tim Wise, White Like Me. I don't know if you've ever seen that. That mm -hmm. is actually on YouTube and it's free. Oh, okay. Tim, Tim Wise is an, is an activist and he, um, 
that's not necessarily biblically based, but it's very much understanding the contract of, 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 of how the white race has basically positioned itself where it is now. It's very, very powerful. And like I said, this is a yeah. white guy who did it, which, which makes it crazy. And it's, it's so funny because he was so hated after making, they started calling him uncle Tim. That's, that's how hated he was. <laughs> so yeah, I know. Right. Oh, so, man. um, so that's definitely something like, and that's on YouTube and that's free. It's about 45 minutes. So there's things that I think the education piece can never be underscored. I think, especially in today's world where we feel like we can just look up something like I was joking around with my wife the other day. I said, you know, we, we went from encyclopedia, right. Um, to Wikipedia to memes. Like that's yeah. how bad it is now. Like there used to be an encyclopedia that sells when they come around. We used to have Britannica, I think Britannica and world book and childcraft. <laughs> we had them all in our house and that would be a thing. Like they'd come by with the different volumes and we buy them. And that's how we research paper, right? If you had a paper. And so that was like, even though it was slow information, it was accurate because it was research and it was given. It was like, okay, encyclopedias, that's how you get information. Then it was like, okay, a Wikipedia where it's fast information, but at least you can kind of, people can edit it, right? You can verify and say, okay, you know, it's mostly true, hopefully, but if somebody writes something crazy, somebody will come in and moderate it. A meme is just like this uneditable block of text or a picture and people are like, that's gospel. Yep, that's it. That's it. That's it right there. I mean, yeah. what? What? Yeah. They're we usually have to do better. <laughs> they're usually hilarious though, Frank. So it's good. You know, and I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, I one do you know one of the things I used to share? I used to talk to parents about technology and about how I was a youth pastor for a long time. And so I would talk to parents about uh, the technology they allow their kids to use. And I would just hold up my cell phone and I would say, So this is a smartphone, and I would hold it up and I would say, uh, most of you have a smartphone that are here as parents, and you're probably at a time where you're considering whether or not you're going to allow your child to have a smartphone. And, and I just said, I think it's really important that we recognize that just a few years ago in the Bill Clinton administration, the president of the United States, which had access to the most information, the quickest did not have access to information the way you do now with a smartphone. It's important for you to recognize that is the leap that has happened. And at that point, I think it was like 20, 25 years. It's probably closer to 30 now. But uh, that is the leap that has happened in just the last couple decades. Um, so, so what you need to think about with that is to hand your child a smartphone and say, make good decisions is literally impossible. You have to create some boundaries here. You have to create some awareness of what they have access to literally more information than the leader of the free world just a few decades ago. It's, it's wild. When you think of it that way, you're like, wow, this has been a leap. And, uh, and, and it's clear that some of the ways we've organized information and some of the ways we've gone about spreading information um, has led to our demise in the fact that we, we rarely, what's considered a resource now is interesting. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to give some substantive resources here, books by experts um, or, or, you know, historical figures, obviously Martin Luther King Jr. So, so, and even John Perkins, like these are, these are uh, individuals who have, who have a lifetime of work and effort into these causes and who are very educated and who are citing like Michelle Alexander's book has multiple footnotes in it, citing like uh, scientific studies. So, 
Um, these are, these are, I think, resources that are above reproach in a lot of ways. That doesn't mean you can't disagree with them, but it's just to say that like the research and, and, the, and the concepts are coming from well-educated people. And so we think it's important that the church tap into some of these resources. And, and I think it's important that we also read resources that maybe even to begin with, we might struggle to agree with, like, it's important to read outside of our echo chambers. I know I do that. Uh, sometimes it's painful. Um, but at the same time, I still want to be thinking critically about ideas that are not my own and concepts that are not my own. And so it's important that our church leaders, our church boards, staff members. Um, I mean, when we even think about the youth pastor, I just referenced, I was a youth pastor. It's like, um, as a parent, it might even be that you buy one of these books for your youth pastor. Just buy him a book. Say, hey, I bought you this book. I'd really appreciate if you read it and maybe in a couple of months we can sit down over breakfast and talk about what, what you think. Um, that to me is a calling in, not a calling out. Hello everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Tune in next time so you can hear the answer to the rest of the five questions on the defundthechurch.com website. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe and iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and other podcasts. And also, don't forget to visit defundthechurch.com where you can find news and information on how to support this movement and rebuild the kingdom.